I'm Brent Grenna, and welcome to The Raise Podcast. We're talking to innovative advancement leaders who aren't satisfied with the status quo. Fundraising is in flux. Revenue's up, but donor counts are dropping. Phonathons are struggling and mass marketing isn't moving the needle. And our largest donors are increasingly feeling tapped out and challenging us to identify the next generation of supporters. But advancement isn't going extinct. It's being reinvented. That's why we're introducing the Raise podcast hosted by me, Brent Grenna, CEO of Evertrue. Join us as we push the boundaries to ensure future generations can benefit from access to education. Today we're talking to John Morris, Senior Vice President of Development at the Kansas State University Foundation. John's a career fundraiser, but his approach is far from typical. In today's conversation, we discuss why John feels so strongly that fundraising really is sales and that we shouldn't be uncomfortable saying so. We also discuss why John takes a mathematical approach to managing his team, and we cover how Kansas State has built one of the highest performing advancement organizations in the world. Here we go. Welcome everyone to today's episode of the Raise podcast. We are joined by John Morris from Kansas State University, uh, from the Kansas State University Foundation, and we have a special impromptu guest host, my colleague, Caroline Scott, who has worked closely with K-State uh, over the years, and uh, and we were just catching up out uh, in the office, and I said, hey, why don't you join? So welcome, yeah, Caroline. This is my first podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I've been at Evertrue for almost five years next month, and so I'm glad that we're finally getting this podcast thing rolling. I know. It's time. And John, welcome. Uh, welcome. How are things in the little apple today? It's a great day and the happiest place on earth right here in Manhattan, Kansas. Thanks for All having right. me. All right. Well, um, before we dive in and talk about life at the K-State Foundation, why don't you uh, just take us through uh, how it is you ended up onto this podcast today? Where'd you start? How'd you get into this advancement space? Uh, what's your career path been so far? So I'm a career fundraiser. This is all I've known since I've been about 20 years old. So I started out my path at my undergraduate, which is Winona State and Winona, Minnesota in the athletic department. I, I walked in and said, hey, I'd really like to be around college athletics. How can I help? Uh, and they pointed me to the external relations team. So I found myself calling boosters for $25 uh, to join the Warrior Club membership. And I joke that I've never been paid to do anything other than that since that day. So I took that and I went to graduate school and learned how to do a little research and learned uh, all about statistics, uh, which led me uh, into my next step at Benedictine University in suburban Chicago. Uh, I was an athletic fundraiser there um, and got to put to use all that statistical knowledge uh, and went through, when I got to Benedictine, there wasn't a single development person on staff. Uh, we got hired, I got hired by the university's executive vice president, uh, who was a tremendous leader and had a great uh, history in higher education, but never in development. And the, the trustee of the advancement committee was a professional sales trainer. So when I came into this business, I spent my first year uh, with no real industry mentor with a background of love and an understanding for statistics and core sales training all the way through kind of their president's club, uh, understanding on, on how, how the sales process, how the sales system works. And so that kind of became uh, the impetus for my view uh, of this business. And I spent uh, my first three years at Benedictine setting up their booster club, doing the same thing I was doing uh, as an undergrad, uh, which built us a nice major gift pipeline, which built us a capital campaign. 
that after about three years, uh, my boss and the chairman of the trustees came to me and said, hey, in athletics, little old Benedictine, you're raising two and a half, three million dollars a year at the rest of the institution. We're only doing about five hundred thousand dollars. How are you doing this? Uh, and I kind of walked them through what my day, week, month looked like uh, in the, the, the amount of uh, effort, energy and conversation that was going in. Um, and they said, well, how would this work? How do we make this work across the university? And I, I kind of described what I thought would be a good model to, to make it happen. And at 26 years old, years old, they handed me the keys and said, all right, you, you run it, kid. And I became the associate vice president for advancement and kind of started that office there at, at Benedictine. Um, and then Minnesota came calling. So you're like the guy from Moneyball that got really good at the stats and then was Billy Bean's right-hand person. Is that, is yeah, that, that, guy that couldn't hit a curveball, right? It, it, it certainly couldn't have any success in the field, but you know, if, if you wanted to put some math behind it, I might be able to figure it out for you. What sparked your interest in statistics? I mean, we've had a lot of conversations with many advancement folks over the years and we would say, tell you, you know, tell us about yourself. We don't often hear, I have a strong interest in statistics. No. I don't know, Maybe that's just I don't know a lot of fundraisers who have a background in statistics. You know, it's funny. So I'll fast forward and tell you what I, what, what I tell our analytics department here is your job is to remove the fundraiser's gut from their decision-making process. Because you know what's always right? Math is always right, right? And so I didn't want to be wrong. I don't like being wrong, which is why I like statistics. It's, and and I, I know, I remember as a graduate student in research methods, really diving into, uh, you know, the, the fallacy that our mind allows us uh, to be influenced by when making personal decisions based on our own in of one understanding of every relationship where what statistics does is it, it normalizes it and it makes it more accurate. And, and I remember thinking every decision I make in my life, I should really make based off of this. Uh, based off of what's going to be most likely to be right. I'm sure your wife loved that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, she loved it. Right? Why are we having four kids? That makes no statistics sense. But, uh, but, you know, so my gut got in the way there. But, but I mean, so, so math is always right. I mean, I, I would say that it is more common in this sector to hear something like, this is more art than science, or it's really art and science, and, and you're saying, no, it's really science and maybe a little bit of art, or... Right, the science needs to guide our action. Our action is the art, right? So the the navigation of a conversation, that's art, right? That That's how do I read, how do I have, do I have the right level of emotional intelligence to read and react in a conversation to guide it to a destination? Who I'm seeing, what I'm talking about, what I'm asking for and how often I'm doing that, that's all math, right? If, if you say, I wanna raise this much amount of money, right? Hoping that this one prospect says yes is not a good strategy, right? Building out your pipeline so that you know through, through regression, uh, this amount of people are going to say yes, this amount of people are going to say no, this amount of people are going to take X amount of time. So that's what our system is all set up to do, is to balance the decision-making process of, of human beings. And, that, and we guide that through relationships, right? And, and we strengthen that. The art the art comes after the science, in my opinion. It's, it's, we standardize the science, and then you kind of embrace and coach up the art of the job. So you mentioned that it was kind of that combination of both statistical interest plus some of the sales mentorship and training that you received uh, as you were getting started in your career. Caroline has, has actually just recently begun to transition into a sales role at Evertrue, having worked in customer success yeah. for many years. So. Um, perfect timing to hear your perspective and philosophy on sales. When you think, I, 
It's also common um, because we believe strongly that many uh, commercial sales principles can be applied to fundraising. Um, but sometimes we get pushback and people say, hey, Brent, you talk about sales too much. It makes us uncomfortable. We don't think of ourselves as salespeople. We're, we're fundraisers. Uh, that's not your perspective. But when you think about the, the key themes from your time uh, early in your career, from a sales training perspective that really stand out that you now try to instill in your uh, uh, department at K-State, what are some of the bullet points that come to mind? Maybe things Caroline should keep in mind as she uh, gets underway here. Yeah, can you give away the secret sauce? <laughs> yeah, so I don't think it's all that secret, right? I think if you just kind of look around industry and if you, if you don't like the word, the word sales, do you, do you like the word account management? Does that feel better? Does that, you know, so any, any industry with high level account management uh, has a process, has a system. Our sector has always just handed you a piece of paper with a list of names on it and said, go forth. Hopefully we come, when we come back in 18 months, we all feel like, okay, we've made enough progress. But how do you know? How do you know that you have made the right progress, that you've advanced in the right way? So if you look at any high level account management organization, they have their way, their system. This is how you, you sell pharmaceuticals at Glaslow Smith Klein. This is how you sell uh, medical equipment at Medtronic. This is how you do it. This is our way. Not every single salesperson gets to make up their own way of how they go about achieving those objectives. Our industry has allowed every gift officer to basically make up your own way, right? So how do you know if you're succeeding or and if you're advancing? So here at Kansas State, we have one way. This is how you prospect, right? We, we prescribe it. It's prescriptive. This is what you do to find prospects. This is how you contact those prospects to get visits to even this is what you say in an email this is what you say on the phone call this is how you request a visit what do you do on a qualification visit what answers do you have to have these are the three questions that you must have answers to how do you write a contact report exactly this is how you do it not however you want to do it this is how you do it so we've standardized the entire process so we've standardized what i call the science this is how it's done and so if you have the right so we can tell a gift officer candidate if you come to work for us and you follow this plan and you have the discipline to hit your metrics, you will be a top 10% performer in this industry just by doing it the way that we set you up to do it. Now, what separates you, what makes you in that top 5%, top 2% is talent, it's skill. And we need to be an organization that attracts and retains the most talented people. And so that's the kind of cultural balance that we look for. So. It's a process, it's a system that we all can look at both as managers and leaders, but also as a gift officer, how, how empowering is that? Is if I follow the script and I conduct this and I, all I have to do is control my effort, I'm gonna be in the top 10% of this industry is a pretty powerful uh, message and a really great recruiting tool for us. So if I were to say, you, you, would, you would claim that your, your average fundraiser is in the top 10% of the industry, is that fair? Our metric expectations are top 10% of the industry. And so, uh, and you have some evidence, right? I mean, when you talk about productivity per fundraiser, you're not just, you're not saying this, this is this is reality. Uh, are, are there some top line metrics you can share around yeah, productivity? Evidence. So if you ask somebody, depending on what set of data you want to grab, the average gift officer in higher education raises somewhere between 1.5 and $1.8 million a year. Uh, ours raises $4.2 million. The average gift officer, full-time gift officers doing between 90 and maybe 110 visits. Our average does 160. Uh, the average gift officer is closing 10 to 12 gifts a year. Our minimum expectation is 25. 
right? So, uh, and part of that is, is, is we're not a giant organization. We're not a, uh, a huge diverse uh, fundraising operation, um, you know, a comprehensive institution with 200 fundraisers. You know, we are a small but mighty uh, team here and that's because we are also a small endowment, right? So it's all relative to, to size and performance in, um, you know, that sort of do more with less is, is really, uh, really, you know, it's really attractive to our donor base. And you're scrappy. Like that's, I think, a portion of it where you were saying you can be in the top 5% if you put additional effort into it and that's the talent. I think it, there's a scrappiness towards it that you could almost compare to a salesperson. I mean, some of the best fundraisers that I've met through working at Evertrue, they come from the sales world and they will cr try the most creative ways. I've definitely told you this story about a guy who fakes an award at his institution in order to get a meeting with someone. So he'll be like, oh, you've just won this engineering award. And they're like, oh, no way. So they meet about it. He gets a huge gift. And then he's got to call the engineering department and be like, I need an award for, you know, John Smith or something like that, which I just think is like brilliant. And that's why he excels is because he comes from the sales world where, you know, you got to get someone on the phone and you got to try creative tactics. Just, hey, how are you? Isn't necessarily it's going right. to work. So, yeah, we really coach on 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 reasons why a donor could say no or a prospect could say no. So that's when I get, when I've talked about, this is how you ask for meetings. If you say, I want to tell you what's going on in the philosophy department in the next month, you know, I can say, no, I just, no, I just read that in the newsletter. I don't need you to come here and tell me that. So we remove the objections. You know, what you can't say no is I want to, I, I really love to learn about you and your, and your philanthropic goals at Kansas State University. The only way you can do that is by sitting down and meeting. And if they say, no, I don't want to talk about, cross them off, right? That's a, I don't want to talk about my philanthropic goals. Well, then they're not a prospect for us. So, so John, let's just say for a minute that uh, to, I mean, to get to the level of productivity and that kind, those kind of metrics, 4 million plus per gift officer, 160 visits per year, not going to happen overnight. That's the K-State way. Maybe that's the John Morris way or some combination thereof. But if you were to talk to a fellow development leader uh, who is struggling, you know, their team just isn't, isn't getting it done. When you think about the, the first, second, third, most important levers that, that you might pull at, at different organizations, what are some of just the basics that are not being done well enough? Or maybe what are some of the behaviors that you have to train out of people that, that maybe are accepted um, elsewhere in, in the sector? Yeah. So here, I think this might help provide some framework. We talk about, we are an outside in fundraising organization where I think our sector has suffered from being inside out, right? So inside out fundraising is, well, what should you do your first 90 days on campus? Well, you should go meet with all the faculty. You should meet with the Dean. You should meet with the department and understand what do they need? What do they need? And you come back and you kind of develop your list of what do you need, right? So you've started inside and now you're going to go outside. And hopefully you're going to go meet with Brent and you're going to say, oh, here's what we need. Are you interested in any of these things? And Brent says, no, I'm not interested in those things. Right. So I didn't even get an opportunity at you, Brent, because I came with you a list of does this fit with what you want? Right. So that's outside in and I, or inside out. And I think that's what we typically do in this sector. We do outside in where we go get to know the prospect. What do you want to accomplish with your giving? You know, what impact do you want to have? And then we bring it in. I have somebody who has capacity to make a gift. They're interested in philanthropy and we can be a priority. And now we play matchmaker on our campus, right? And so that works on both sides. Uh, and why, it's, why we believe it's better 
to, to, to work outside in is that now we're going to chase the right prospects. Use data, use statistics to understand who's most likely and who's most ready to make a gift. Those are the people I want to engage with first. And that guides everything. So when you ask how can we be efficient, how can we have these sorts of metrics, uh, we have a great understanding of our overarching capacity. We have a very great understanding of who our prospects are and what that pool of most likely to give are. So I know I got about 15,000 people right now out of our 190,000 that are legitimate major gift targets. I only have 40 fundraisers, okay? I don't have enough of the, I don't have enough fundraisers that can even add 160 visits a year, get in front of all of those 15,000 people to assess, are you philanthropic? Do you have capacity? Can we be a priority? So that math is a staffing, allows me to understand staffing decisions. It allows me to keep a, an aggressive scale of production. Uh, it allows us to, to keep those high level of, of uh, industry performance because uh, we, we don't have the money to, to become. A, I can't just say we're going to have 100 fundraisers next, next week. Why not, John? I think, I mean, why not? Because I think that my board, you know, if my board said, whoa, your salespeople are four times more productive than the industry average or three or four times more, get more salespeople. Yep. So we've done that measured, right? And we've grown by about 10 fundraisers, right? Over a year's time. And, our, and I, I credit our board for, for finding creative ways to find, that, to find that extra money to invest. And they'll tell you, this is the best investment that we make, right? Because it adds back into our endowment and adds to the purpose of everything that we're here. Uh, but certainly I don't, have, I don't have a large enough endowment. I have enough, don't have a large enough funding source from the university that would say, we're gonna go from a $20 million budget to a $50 million budget in a two-year time frame. Uh, but we tell you that the money that you spend, the money that we do allocate for fundraising is going to come back at about 36X return, which they tend to like. Wow. And so, John, you're, you've been at K-State Foundation for three years, around three years, and you came in during a campaign and there was a goal. And how many times, I just got a LinkedIn notification that you've exceeded it again, yeah? Yeah, we did. So uh, we, I arrived here, it's a funny story, so I was at the University of Minnesota. I, I, I left, I mentioned Benedictine and then I said, and then Minnesota came calling. And so I was at the University of Minnesota Foundation, um, had a great job. We were prepping for a $4 billion campaign. Um, wow. A lot of fun there, wonderful organization, giant, right? One of these giant yeah. powerhouse institutions. Um, and then got the opportunity to come here and work with Greg Willems, uh, our CEO. And, you know, I remember coming to Manhattan and spending time, uh, you know, my wife, whose entire life has been spent in Chicago, Illinois, in Minneapolis, Minnesota. I said, oh, I really, really want this job, but I'd, I'd kind of like to stay married a little bit more. So let me make sure I get my wife here uh, before we commit. And um, so she came down, we had a great Statistically speaking, that was smart. Exactly. I use statistics to analyze the situation and make sure <laughs> I made analyze the right analyze my wife. <laughs> exactly. So we came down and had a great visit and, uh, spent some time with Greg and, and his wife, Christina, and with Kirk Schultz, the, the president of the time, and, and John Curry, our athletic director. And I remember flying back on a plane uh, back to Minneapolis, and I said to Kerry, I said, if that place is right for Greg Willems, for Kirk Schultz, and for, and for John Curry, then I think it's right for us. And so we accepted the job and um, put our house in the market, and the Twin Cities market is fantastic. It's gone in a day. So we're all moving to Manhattan. And I said, well, we got to find a place to live. We came back down here about two weeks later and Greg asked me to come in and interview a candidate. And so I did that. And then he pulls me into his office and he says, I got to tell you something. 
Kirk Schultz is going to be named the president of Washington State University here today. Uh, I understand if this changes your decision. And I, said, <laughs> I quit my job and I sold my house. So I'm coming. <laughs> I hope you want me. Uh, and but we had just gone public on a campaign. He was a he is a very dynamic, excellent fundraising president, which made you know made this job very attractive. Uh, and and certainly Greg in in the position that we were in here at the foundation made it made it really attractive. But I share that. So then the transition of leadership uh, became who is now our president, uh, General Richard Myers, who is chairman of the Joint Chiefs. Uh, he's a Kansas treasure, a uh, revered graduate of our program. He also happened to be the former foundation board chair and the campaign co-chair of our, of our billion dollar campaign. And so you know, he came in and when he accepted the permanent presidency, you know, he said, no, I believe in this vision. I believe in where we're headed. This is the plan. So there was no reason to alter the plan. There was also no reason to put his term to waste by shutting down the program. So we utilized announcing our billion dollar achievement of the original $1 billion goal uh, about 18 months early with an extension. So from a position of strength, we know we can do more. We're gonna add two years and four and forty four hundred million dollars onto this goal, and then now you fast forward to a couple of weeks ago, about fifteen months in advance of that extension, we've surpassed our one point four billion dollar uh, campaign goal and, and onward and upwards. So. That is that is nuts. And so in your three years with all this extended money, obviously that's a lot of gifts. And so what was the most memorable gift or donation or kind of like challenge really that you would that you would say yeah i mean you we never get to be on the inside of of a gift negotiation and and frankly probably a bunch of your colleagues don't get windows into the conversations that you and greg and, and a select few um are part of so uh would and love no your need take to name on, names yeah, of course yeah, obviously yeah. all all between us <laughs> yeah and, and whoever's listening so yeah if you're out there. <laughs> yeah. You know, every every month we have a staff meeting, a division meeting, and we start all of them the same way with a gift story where we'll bring up um, a gift officer and he'll and he or she will connect all the dots. Right. How did this gift come to close? And it's amazing to see how many staff members here on campus and elsewhere have a have a hand in making that happen. So for those of even 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 our partners, even our even you all at Evertrue have a role in some of those gift stories. So even though you might not see it, feel it, touch it every day, uh, really it is the collective that makes these things happen. And there's really great examples of great work for twenty-five thousand dollar gifts, and there's really great examples of twenty-five million dollar gifts. I'll share a little deep dive on um, on a very significant gift, and I don't want to give a whole lot of details because it's pretty obvious if you just hit Google, you'll find the gift I'm talking about. But um, it started out uh, where we were in a meeting. We were in a, a principal gift strategy meeting on, on, a, on a very generous couple here. And we said, we want to provide to them a, an experience, a stewardship experience that they're going to remember forever. And so we want to make it very custom to them. And why we started with stewardship, uh, and it was authentic. We really did. It was a really a time to say thank you because they had just come off a pretty significant gift. And we had kind of been in discussion and said, we, we need to press pause for a second on our giving. Um, you know, but I said, well, we can't just accept this gift and, and not do anything for them to kind of show our gratitude. So we created this customized experience. 
um, where it started with, I think we're in the meeting and I said, you know what, they love athletics. What if, how do we just, let's let them have dinner on the 50 yard line before a game. What, let's just do that. And the staff took it and ran with it and created an experience where a uh, limousine went and picked them up at their house. And then they came into the athletic uh, doors and it was full of people that have benefited from their philanthropy, cheering, waving, holding up signs, yeah, you know, <laughs> applauding them as they walk through. Uh, then we, then they're guided by a tour uh, by our president down through the locker room. And we have individual lockers set up with their jerseys and names on it and, and all of these great messages. We parade them out into the field with the smoke and the fireworks. They're led out by, uh, by, by, the, by Willie the Wildcat getting that game day experience. And then, they, and then they get to have dinner with all the leaders of the, or, of the university on the 50 yard line, all just sharing, sharing meal and, and great conversation. And then on a big jumbotron, we had video recordings, testimonials of the, the people that have received their, the benefits from their philanthropy. Uh-huh. And the last piece of it was their children, thanking them for modeling the way, right? For showing us, showing them as, as their children, what, what it means to them that, that the philanthropy that they've modeled here at Kansas State. Oh my right? gosh. And it was, it was fantastic, right? And I got to watch it up from like the coach's box. So over uh, watching this whole thing go down and, you know, they're highly engaged. They're here all the time. Uh, again, just said press pause. Um, but flash forward about two or three months and we had just come off a trustees meeting and we did a presentation about uh, land gifts. We were acquiring land gifts um, and the legacy that that can create and how, and how we can be a really good option for people uh, with that motivation. And uh, they came up to me and said, you know what, we need to start looking at our estate. We need to start looking at, you know, what is, what is it we want our estate to do? And so that led to another conversation. So when you think about that estate gift, it's kind of your ultimate legacy. We wanted to provide them with, and they've been so generous in so many different ways, is here's all the things that we that you have supported and we found some themes in, in those givings and those, a lot of those themes were leadership. And is that leadership is important to you. And so what started out as kind of a, we, we were testing a new proposal and I'll share some dollar amounts. It was about $40 million. And here's the other thing I would say is a difference in, in from the industry. That $40 million proposal had about 10 words on it. So there wasn't a lot of- Write that down. Narrative. Did you say 10, <laughs> 10 chapters? What did you say? Words, not 10 paragraphs, right? 10 words. Here's, here's the vision and, and make it a conversation. And through all that estate conversation, we got really at their philanthropic motivations. And they dropped me off at the airport. And the next morning, my cell phone rings and it's the, and it's the wife of the couple and says, I know what we want to do. I don't want you to tell my husband what it is we want to do, but you need to bring us back naming our college. And instead of it being a deferred gift, it became a blended gift opportunity, which led into some of this negotiation, Brent, that we had talked about, uh, where it was, how can we do this and name it now, not posthumously, and create, and so there was some negotiation, but it was always in, the the heart of the the toughest part of the negotiation is identifying what do you want to accomplish now it becomes my job to figure out what paths make most sense to you so within a year's time frame we went from hey we got to pause to 
the second largest gift from an individual in the history of our organization in the first name college. Wow. And, and do you think you never know, given that they were already so uh, involved with the institution, they, they, they would inevitably likely have done additional um, projects or, or support. How important was that, that experience, the football dining experience? I mean, it seemed like part of it is to genuinely let them know that, that you care and, and to, to just do, do the right thing but it also created an opportunity for a conversation that frankly was sparked very organically. W yeah. Would this have happened if it weren't for that dinner? Well, I think that that was the spark that ignited the idea. So they, and I've talked to them so many times. I mean, we're, we're so close, but it was, you know, we thought about, I mean, even a year later, uh, I saw them like two days afterwards. And they said, you know, we were, we were sitting, we were sitting, you know, finishing our wine and saying, you know, it was a year ago we did that event it was so i mean it was so meaningful to them that i think it made it really crystal clear even from their own perspective here's what's most important to us this is what uh really uh, what we're most proud of and so it without that i think it would have probably happened eventually down the road uh maybe decades from now but it it, it really accelerated that confidence i think in in their own awareness of yeah this is this is a a, a of all the things that we've done in our life, this is as important as any of it. But at the same time, doesn't it make you wonder how much philanthropy is being left on the table by our inability to deliver that kind of custom experience in a more scalable manner? I mean, how many more people out there might feel that same inspiration, but you can't do dinners on the 50-yard line every day? And so, I mean... Shoot. Yeah, right. I mean... <laughs> That actually kind of reminded me of my college uh, recruiting trips, by the way. They kind of made me feel um, special like that. But then I showed up on campus <laughs> and none of the coaches would really talk to me. Yeah. So it was sort of a, a slightly different follow through experience that you all created. But. Absolutely. The power of moments. I don't know if you've ever read that book, even just breeze through the cover, but how do you create these special moments for people? Right. right? And you can, you can orchestrate it. Um, and not everything is going to take all hands on deck, every staff member we have to kind of pull together, but creating that experience. We talk about creating a gratifying gift experience for our donors. You know, that's one of our pillars. Uh, we have some clarity questions in our organization and I'll, I'll, I'll share those as an aside. So if you're a gift officer and you don't manage any people, just your portfolio, you have three questions to ask yourself every day. Is the activity I'm doing helping me get visits, conduct visits or follow up on visits? If you can't say yes, you need to stop whatever it is and go back to doing what you can say yes to. For our entire division, it's is the activity I'm doing making gift officers more effective? Is this helping us to raise major gifts? Is this inspiring giving? And is this creating a gratifying gift experience? So part of creating a gratifying gift experience isn't to the masses. It is what's important to, to this donor at this time. And how do I create an experience both in the gifting and the post-gift it's going to be gratifying that they're going to feel proud to have accomplished. And so not all of that has to be dinner on the 50 yard line with every staff member. I mean, some of it is as simple as a phone call, as a video message, as a, as an engagement, as a note, right. But knowing that I, my, my job is to ensure that I'm creating an experience that's going to be gratifying. I think that's where uh, every business talks about the customer life cycle and lifelong customer relationships, but um, few sectors really have the opportunity
to foster truly lifelong relationships the way that higher ed uh, does. And I think that you know we think a lot about that here after we you know close a sale, like that's really when it starts, right? That's when the relationship starts. And I think that you know the whole sales sector has evolved as, as our economy has shifted more and more to subscriptions um, versus one-time purchases. Um, it really is the beginning, and, and Caroline's moving from a role where it was about nurturing that relationship. Yeah, I can't even leave K-State. I've still got to be on a podcast right, with them. I can't. Right. This, is, <laughs> this yeah. transition's a lot harder this is part than I thought. Of, part of stewardship. <laughs> um, but, you know, we don't call it stewardship. We call it customer success, but I think it's, you know, it's essentially the same, and, and I think that that's where, um, you know, if, if you buy Evertrue software and we send you a receipt, that's probably not what you're looking for. Uh, and if I make a donation and I get a receipt and not much else, that's not okay either. And, and so I think you know the you know, vendors that serve the higher ed sector uh, are held to a higher standard to deliver ongoing support. Um, but I, I do still feel like in, in many pockets of the giving pyramid, um, people are just getting a receipt. And, 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 and that is not the, the inspiring post-gift experience um, you know that that you're certainly trying to, to deliver um, obviously you have made some interesting investments at K-State both from a technology perspective but also from a staffing perspective to, to try new job titles try new roles to be able to reach more people in a one-to-one -one manner um, and so maybe it's worth talking about those because like you said not everybody's gonna get the the dinner in the 50-yard line but they can have definitely a more personalized experience than you know their phones blowing up during dinner, or you know, getting a bunch of mail that they that they that they throw away. Not that sometimes that isn't the right uh, medium, but but you've tested new job titles and new roles, and, and would love your take on on kind of that next wave from a human capital perspective to try to leverage some of these tools and capabilities. Yeah. So so to your earlier point of well, we can't give everybody you know the fifty yard line experience, and it takes a lot of people to even pull that off. So I mean, if you as a gift officer think that you alone can handle a gratifying gift experience for that one prospect, I think you're delusional because you can't. So I think utilizing staff, I think we've overemphasized in our, in our sector that I as a fundraiser am the key to this relationship, right? With the prospect, it's, you know, I'm the conduit. I might be the conduit, but more relationships and more conduits are better. Right, and so the more engaged the prospect is, not just with me, their primary manager, but with different areas and programs within the, the, the university is only a good thing because they're gonna last, I, I remind our staff of that all the time, that donor, that alum is going to last longer than any tenure of any dean, any president, they're, they're engaged over the lifetime. So we need to engage them as such. And so the more, the better. So we've used, we've put to the, the question of how we change from industry is we put more people uh, more staff power behind that gratifying experience in what you call customer success, and then we might call stewardship, it's donor success too. You know, uh, I think gone are the days where the, ma the majority of, of people are giving to their alma mater based out of obligation. Uh, it's, I want to make a difference. I want to see change. I want to see positive impact. And a receipt does not convey positive impact. So, how do you utilize technology? How do you utilize uh, smart uses of data to communicate and show, answer them the question, what difference did my $50 make, right? 
answer the question, how did we get better today with my gift? Um, I, I, I put up a, I use an image to do some training with our, with our teams, with our faculty, uh, with our partners to understand what is this generation and the next several generations expectation when they make a gift. Um, and it's transfor transformational change. And so I put an image of a horse and buggy and then I add my gift and the result is a Tesla. That's the expectation that our donors have. Transformational change. What we've been giving them as an industry is here's the horse and buggy. You add my, my gift. You might, maybe we add a second horse to that buggy, but nothing really changed. Or maybe we painted the wheels, right? Nothing really changed. So that's the expectation is that transformational change. And you don't see that through a receipt. So we've tried to create positions. We have uh, digital development officers uh, that can have a one-to-one -one relationship with a lot and lot, a lot of prospects. Five What's a lot and lot? I just talked to somebody last week who said they're trying to launch a digital gift officer program. But I think we're hearing, we're hearing so many examples where it's basically, um, it, it, you're using, it's like you're using the internet to get visits, but you're still doing the old work. And then it made me wonder, well, why wouldn't you be using the internet to get visits already? And so what is the difference between a digital gift officer program in your vernacular at K-State uh, versus maybe some of what we're hearing in the sector? Yeah, so it's, it's a couple things. It is ensuring, right? So it's uh, maybe lapsed donors or people that didn't happen to give in, the, in, the, in, the, in our arbitrarily 12-month fiscal year. Uh, you know, yeah, typically you make a gift at this time for this project. Can I help you with that? And beyond, can I help you make this gift is now, what are, what are your expectations with this? Now, what do, you, what do you expect this to achieve? And how do I help you kind of frame that? Uh, again, setting them up for more success is my, is, my, is my gift meaningful. So there's a part of the acquisition process of, of who, who, what prospects does data lead us to believe are capable and should be making a gift and maybe haven't yet had that opportunity. So let's give them that opportunity. The other part of it too, is we have some really cool initiatives, uh, be that scholarship matches, uh, be that uh, you know, some other uh, project-based things where we can use data to say, hey, these 5,000 people seem to be capable of, of taking advantage of this scholarship match. Let's target them specifically to make them aware and target them in the channels that they're interacting with. So if they're interacting with us on LinkedIn or uh, Facebook or, or, or any of the other social medium, right? If it's, just elect, if it's just email, if we know they open emails, we can communicate in that way. If it's the telephone, we can communicate that way. Uh, but it's not, a, it's not a pinned signature from your dean of the college. It is an actual fundraiser, professional fundraiser there to help them through that process, there to help them su have success. Uh, so that's a big scope of their job. And that's as many as, you know, we have expect them to do 150 contacts a day right? Uh, it's these sorts of engagements um, with, with, um, with prospects, uh, with potential donors, and it's nimble, right? It's not... Did you say 150 contacts per month, John? <laughs> day, day, day. <laughs> and a contact is simply, you know... We're going to lose people yeah. uh, right at that moment, but I think it's worth doubling down because, you know, that, that is exactly uh, the kind of scalable outreach that we think is, is possible, but... Um, you know, we were we were talking to an institution recently that said that they had a goal. Uh, uh, they set a new ambitious goal of 25 contacts per week, which what? is five per day. They will remain nameless, but I'm just saying that's 
you know, that's that's the reality. And and so 150 per day is probably on on the absolute uh, extreme of what you might find in the sector. How's that working? Lessons learned so far, and uh, you know, what's the case you'd make that others would try to consider some more high-velocity one-to-one outreach in lieu of just mass emailing 80,000 people at a time? Yeah, exactly. So, it you know, it's a it's a it's a work in progress, and we're learning every day. Uh, part of it is you, you get the right candidates, and we think we have right. We think we have uh, people that are familiar. Uh, with these sorts of technologies and these sorts of uh, communication platforms. And so they're very capable. Don't have to train them how to use Instagram. Yeah. Uh, you know? So I think that's a benefit, uh, a benefit to us. Uh, but it's also, you know, Brent, it's job, uh, you know, uh, it's, it's structuring all the positions in the appropriate way. I don't need a high level portfolio managing senior major gift officer doing 150 contacts. Right. Right. I need them doing, you know, substantive personal visits leading to gift acquisition. So it's a little bit of that um, in the role clarity of this is what your job is. This is what it's not is really empowerful for those uh, for that group. Um, But we're learning that that's we have a vast amount of prospects uh, whose capacity ratings are between twenty five thousand and one hundred thousand, like 40. We have like 40,000 people. Right, that have that rating, right? And and there's no way that with 40 gift officers we can work through that enough. But we want to give as many people as possible uh, the experience of a one-to-one relationship. So yes, it's digital development officers, but I, that's kind of the entire approach we've taken with our what we used to call annual giving to strategic solicitations is to mirror that same experience that you get with a gift officer with your telephone caller with yep. your email requests, right? And so getting rid of the blank black signature of so-and-so dean or so-and-so university president and making it the same face, the same name, that's talking to you about what's important to you, data technology allows us to do that. And I, I think as an industry, we're missing the mark. If we don't offer the same experience, uh, purchasing experience that our donors are getting in everything else they buy, Right, and everything else they make a transaction, they're getting that experience. So we are trying to mirror that, learn from from our industry partners on on how we best kind of create that that relevant experience. And feeling like your institution knows who you are is a very it's very powerful in the in the gifting uh, proposition. This is yep. where a round of applause would happen, and yes. like people would Live stand up audience. and they'd be like, "We're finally listening." Yeah, I mean, look, we were we were at a we had a case conference. Uh, here in Boston locally, and we I, I was fortunate to present with Steve Hall, who's the VP of Alumni Relations and Annual Giving at Boston University. And, and um, you know, one of the questions we asked the audience up front was, hey, raise your hand if you've had somebody from your university call you and ask for money, right? And every single hand went up in the room. And I said, you know, keep your hands up if somebody from your university is called uh, to check in and see if they could help, you know, to see how your career is going, to see if they could help plug you in, to, to introduce you to opportunities, to let you know about an upcoming event. And not every hand went down, but almost every hand went down. And, uh, you know, that, that I, I think for this next wave of customer success and creating the experience, um, you've got to let people know that you think of them as people uh, and that if, if there is a way for Kansas State to help, that you're willing to help them and earn their gift 
you know, versus versus solicit the gift or lead with the ask, which I think unfortunately has been the status quo. But uh, but change is coming, and, and and you're certainly at the forefront of that. You know, we uh, we just had our trustees, which is our 350 closest families and friends of the of the institution here, and we highlighted this change to them, particularly related to our telephone experience. Um, and one of the big changes we made was there's no script, right? We don't give those 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 students a script to read that says, hi, Brent, you know, I see you graduated this year. Would you like to make your gift to, you know, this, this college and ask you, make you tell me no three times, et cetera, et cetera. So we got rid of that. And I'll tell you where I was inspired was I was reading an article uh, that Zappos got away with the script, right? So whenever you call into Zappos and you have a problem with your order or you want to return something or something didn't fit the right way, you used to have a script. So when, when caller says my product isn't the same color I want it to be, they flip to page 48 and answer that question in the script, right? They got rid of it and they taught their staff to ask probing questions to solve the problem, right? Specifically to each caller. We took that same thought. What if we could ask probing questions to get to a gift that's going to be gratif gratifying and meaningful to that specific caller? So we have an algorithm that spits us out some information that tells us here's the three things that you might want to probe on to ask specific questions. What did we learn? What have we learned so far in a year? Our average call with a script uh, took about two minutes and 58 seconds for them to tell us no three times and then hang up. Our average call now is over 17 minutes. We are giving them the same experience, the, the, the replicate experience that they would get if the gift officer was sitting on their sofa enjoying a cup of coffee with them. What's important to you and how do I provide an experience uh, that's going to be most meaningful? And you also invested in those, I mean, this is all coming back to me from our visit when we were there in September, but not that everyone <clears throat> can invest in this way, I guess, but you really train your student callers. They have an interest in philanthropy. They were potentially, you know, at Winona State saying, I wanna get involved in it just like you were, but. I think what's great about it is that they feel like they're going to a job and that they're already adults. Like Eric Holderness More on your team. Path. Yeah, it's a career yeah. path. It's yeah. not just like a, a little kind of side job. Like this is part of their life and they're making a difference. They have to wear nice clothing and look, you know, look the part in order to do that. And I do remember one example where someone who worked in the foundation was like, I'm so excited about this change because I got a call and I was like, I'm right upstairs. Why don't you know this about me <laughs> prior to the change, of course. <laughs> So yeah, we highlighted that and all the points that you're making. They have the students, college have pride in their work. There are employees and we treat them as such. They come to our staff meetings, they come to our summits, we give them training. Uh, you know, we, we also decided we were going to pay more than any other student job, right? So we want to attract uh, the most talented students we can uh, to this. And we shared it and the, the students were awesome on this panel and great questions and great state innovation. And then I had a board member uh, who's been on our board the whole time I've been here come up to me and, and she, she says, of all the things you guys have done here, this is the best thing that you guys have done. <laughs> like, uh, I thought the $1.4 billion was a big deal, but yeah, I'm glad that the, you're happy with this. <laughs> because <laughs> as a board member, her concern is who's going to fill my seat? Who's going to be that next wave of donors, of major investors in our institution? Mm -hmm. And if we're not giving them the best experience we possibly can, you know, we're, we're compromising our fiduciary responsibility to our organization, right? You're not setting up uh, the long-term sustainability. So it's just been a, 
a really good move for us. And I got to tell you what, those, I, I led the panel of the discussion, but those students were the rock stars. And I think they all had job offers by the time they got off the stage. <laughs> um, segue maybe into the next question, but when you think about areas that the advancement sector, not necessarily K-State, but in general, the advancement sector is investing too much in for too little return, whether that's money, people, time, um, versus areas that the sector is under-investing in, does anything come to mind? Yeah, a couple things. Um, on the over-investment, uh, and maybe it's over-reliance uh, on nostalgia and obligation. I think um, I think we spend an, a lot of time marketing uh, and communicating to the 18-year-old version of of our prospects, to the 20-year-old version of our prospects. I I joke, I, I tell a story just from my perspective. So I have a young family, I have four children, um, and in the past three years, I have bought a Honda Odyssey twice. If you would have tried to sell me a Honda Odyssey when I was 20 years old, I would have told you you were crazy, right? You know, you yeah. I would sh sell me a Camaro when I'm 20. But now, fast forward to who I am. If you tried to sell me a sell me a Camaro today, I would tell you you are crazy. There's no way I'm buying I'm buying that. You know what? Honda knows my demographics. They know who I am. They know what I need. They that's what I get marketed to. I don't know. I don't get tried to sell a Camaro. Right, because that's not who I am, it's who I was. We don't do that in our sector. We sell to the 19, 20 year old version of you for the rest of your life. I think we've relied on that a little bit too much. And as I mentioned earlier, I think the, the obligation gifts are going to dry up and go away. And it's going to be, how are you gonna help me solve a problem? My problem is I have four little humans that I want to get transported as safely as possible. Honda Odyssey, you're my solution, right? And that's how we need that's we're not going to change generations aren't going to change for us we need to change for generations so i think we've we have an over reliance and that probably goes to staffing it goes to our collateral and communication and to our strategy on nostalgia and obligation and the idea that i can just relationship people to making gifts right if you're not showing a value proposition a return on their investment a positive change if you're not making teslas out of horse and buggies then you're not going to earn that philanthropy. Where aren't we spending enough time? Training and developing our staff. Again, our, I, my observation early in this industry was here's, your, here's a piece of paper with a list of 150 names on it. Go, go engage them. That was about the amount of coaching. So you would tell and then you would expect. I tell you, here's your, here's your list of names. I expect you to raise money. And in a year from now, I might be surprised that you haven't raised as much as I thought you should have, right? Or vice versa. So we don't do enough coaching. We don't do enough developing. Um, we also, I think, overemphasize um, the leading. I, I think we, the only way to move up in our business is to be add people underneath you, creating more paths for individual contributorships in, in rewarding and, and incentivizing those positions are critical in our sector. I think to just say, you know what, throw it, someone's a really great individual contributor, throw some people underneath them so that we can pay them more money and give them a better title is an archaic approach because they might be better and more suited to, to continue on as an individual contributor. John, I don't think we've had this conversation, but we've done some past uh, content at Evertrue just debating 
uh, compensation and, and merit-based pay, incentive comp within the philanthropic sector could be a hot-button issue. But um, you know, the point we've made in the past is that um, presidential pay, packs, uh, pay packages are heavily incentives-based. Football coach pay packages, heavily incentive-based. Um, all of those individuals can contribute to philanthropic support as well. But for most fundraisers, there's minimal, if any, incentives whatsoever. And we somehow come down on, well, it's, it's not ethical to do that. Um, so I'm curious to get your perspective on uh, creative approaches to inspire compensation while trying to walk the line around you know, not, not wanting the donors to feel uh, like there's a commission riding on the gift. Um, how do you balance that? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, because I certainly see, you know, if I look through this through the lens of the donor, right, I want to make sure that my, as much of my money is going to purpose as we possibly can. Um, however, my counter to that ar argument is, is talent. We want, I, we want the most talented people in our sector, right? I mean, would you rather somebody with this skill, and, and not, that, not that, you know, selling you know, helicopters isn't a worthy cause, but if someone is that skilled and, and that's how they can make that compensation. I think societally, we'd rather have that person doing good. Our stuff changes the world, right? Our gifts, you know, I strip all away the good and what we do, we're a fund and our job is to go add to the fund. The cool thing about our job is that fund changes the world. So the more talented people we can get doing this business, the better it is on society. You want those exceptionally high performers to be in this sector not to be selling widgets, right? We want them here. And compensation is a critical factor of that. If we can't be competitive in that marketplace, um, what's gonna lead us to believe that, that, that we're going to attract those right people? Now, you have to be mission driven to do this work, right? If you're not driven by a mission, why would you come work for us? Mm -hmm. uh, but that doesn't mean, I mean, we're a charity, but not to our employees, right? So it, you can still uh, create some compensation that I think needs to be more competitive within the within the general industry. Um, so I'm not opposed to incentive. Yeah. I'm not opposed to uh, you know incentivizing the right activities uh, and the right results. Um, again, and I think it's on individual contributor paths too, as well as as team leaders. I think we need to find ways to to be more competitive um, to keep people and attract the most talented people to this industry. So. You know what, if I have to pay somebody 20% more and they're going to raise 80% more in the dollars, I think we all win. Yeah, we're a charity, but not to our employees, I think is a really uh, profound statement. And, and let's stop pretending that, that that's the case. And um, uh, yeah, we're, we're aligned there for sure. So look, we want to be somewhat uh, sensitive to time here, but, but I did, uh, this, is, this is an awesome conversation. And and did want to uh, kick a couple of, of questions your way. We love asking people what their craziest stories, most memorable uh, places they visited. I mean, you get to be around some amazing people. You get to you know access to um, some really interesting experiences. What what stands out? Anything off the wall or or, or exciting that you uh, you could share? Right, and trying to find the the most PG version of all of these, because there's definitely some R-rated This is PG-13 show, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, so. You know, I've had uh, a 80-year-old man change his clothes in front of me during a visit, yeah. 
I just heard that story at my reunion. So someone just told me a very similar one. You think it was the same guy? Yeah, it could be the same guy. Uh, I've heard stories of, uh, of, of colleagues, uh, a, a particular colleague of mine who, uh, you know, is one of those, why did I do that sort of moments where he was out on a visit and um, it was at a time where the flu shot was in uh, short supply and his donor prospect said, hey, I have flu shots in my freezer. And the, the, the fundraiser thought, oh, that's fine. Took a flu shot from general prospect. <laughs> and like, don't do that. Don't do that. Add oh that one. Gosh. Add that to the HR manual. I drive right to the hospital. Right. I'm like, Can we reverse this? Right. Yeah. Uh, those uh, things. Uh, I've been on horrifying visits of myself where, you know, I'm in there with a, uh, with a donor couple. And I say to the, the husband, thank you so much for what you've done. And the spouse looks at me crossways and looks at him crossways. What's he talking about? Right. What do you, what, what's he talking about? What you've done? What, well, you gave us $50,000 last year, last month. Well, why didn't, why didn't you tell me that? I've, I have done my, I've been a poor officer in that way and made that assumption. Been on terrible visits like that, uh, all sorts of have things. Have you ever, have you ever, uh, or, or are you aware of colleagues who've, who've asked for way too much money? I mean, has anybody just totally misread the tea leaves? Oh, I'm sure. And, and had a massive overask? Not at K-State, of course. No, not it's... John or any of his coworkers, <laughs> but other people he might know. Well, John's done that before. <laughs> uh, I, I remember I asked a gentleman uh, who I, gave me all the signs that he was capable, right? All the signs. He's cutting checks for fifty thousand dollars everywhere at any given time, and I asked him for two million dollars, uh, and we stood there for about what felt like forty-five minutes, and he kind of just stared at the piece of paper, and then he looked at me and he said, "I don't have that kind of money." This <laughs> okay, right? I mean, I've done that before, uh, you know, but I don't know. I've heard people say that's that's further than we want to go, or that's beyond where we want to go. Uh, but, you know, I think my job is to, our job is to ask, right, within the reasonable bounds of, you don't want to embarrass anybody, right? You don't want to put them in that position. But um, I think our, we probably under ask more than we actually do ask. Uh, I tell a story of, a, of a, at a previous institution, uh, extremely generous benefactor had given $45 million dollars. Uh, to cure this certain disease. And I don't, again, don't want to give too many details because you start Googling, you'll figure it out. Um, but he gave $45 million to cure this certain disease. 12 years later, we came back and we wanted to ask him to name the medical school for $200 million. And, uh, and we said, you know, this is where we're at. You know, that, that disease still very much exists. We didn't cure it. Uh, and, his, and his first comment was, why well, would have given you $100 million if you would have actually done it? Right. Uh, you know, I talked about, well, we were close and he, and he used the phrase, or I said, we got about 90% of the way there. He goes, well, that's still wrong. Right. 90% is still wrong. Right. Didn't get hundred percent of the way there. Uh, but certainly it would, but it kind of dawned on me was achieving the goal, uh, fulfilling the objective is a good justification of a dollar amount. This is what it would take to turn the horse and buggy into the Tesla rather than I'm asking you for this amount of money because that's what I would like you to give. It's more of this is the outcome that we can achieve. So I've been on tons of those, uh, tons of those visits under ask, over ask. Um, I had gift officers that have worked for me that uh, have had to do the Heimlich in the middle of a visit. 
You know, somebody starts choking on something. We had one, we had a former colleague who worked in development and he told me one time that, uh, that he made a significant over ask and that the, uh, the prospect uh, picked up a glass of wine and it started kind of shaking and spilling all over the table. So yeah, it, uh, it happens. You don't know if you don't ask. Um, all right, look, when you're, when you're not raising money on behalf of K-State or, or other institutions, uh, what do you like to do outside of, outside of work? Yeah, well, I mentioned... Sounds like cruise around kids. in the yeah, Odyssey. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, the Odyssey, all those cool things. Yeah, yeah, I spend a lot of my time in dance recitals, uh, in, in watching three-year-olds play soccer, uh, you know, all mostly family-related uh, activities at this point. Uh, you know, it's it, and what's great about Kansas State University, it's, um, you know, my job and my life get to intersect a lot. And so the family gets to get involved in what we do here and it, it, it makes it a heck of a lot more of a rewarding experience. But yeah. yeah, most of my time is spent, you know, a lot of princesses. We just had our first boy. So I'm hoping that maybe some fire trucks and some footballs get, get incorporated into what we do. But uh, I just spent three and a half hours at a dance recital on Sunday. So it's, it's those sorts of things. Any advice uh, on that topic? Advice or? on dance? No, I never did dance. Okay. <laughs> I know I did other sports, but I've heard um, dance, it, be careful because dance can get really expensive. I had a guy at a school tell me when you have kids, do not get into dance because it's like 14 outfits that you need to buy a year, every single year. And you have to travel all these places. I mean, that's assuming they're good, but that's kind of how my <laughs> I'm neighbors, sure they're very good. <laughs> we, we have three sons and uh, we live in South Boston. It, uh, intense hockey country, and, and all of our neighbors tell us not to let our kids play hockey because it's like a similar kind of commitment. Yeah, so. it's a lot. I mean, any sport's a lot of money, but... Um, John, do you have any mentors along the way that, that you'd want to call out? Uh, you know, who are some of the people that are, either have mentored you directly or other leaders in the sector who, who you really think highly of, you feel like have um, lessons that we can all learn from? Yeah, well, you know, I'll start right here. Our CEO, Greg Willems, uh, you know, my opinion is best in the business. He's a visionary, um, hard driving, high expectation that really sets the tone for culture. Uh, and Greg's been, you know, at Texas A&M, he's been at UBC, at Hawaii, and, and, and here leading our organization. Um, he's a confidant. He's a, he's a, he's definitely a mentor, uh, and a brilliant fundraiser. I think, uh, a testament to our, you know, sometimes our sector, uh, doesn't always advanced to the cap to the highest level position isn't always a fundraiser. I think uh, he's a great testament as to why you would want somebody making decisions for your organization that has the lens of a fundraiser. Um, yeah, I mentioned, you know, the, the, the guy that hired me in this business, a guy by the name of Charlie Gregory at Benedictine University. Uh, he was the executive vice president. Um, he since he retired once and he failed that. They brought him back to be the interim president. And I, and I, and I smile because I actually just got the alumni magazine and read it yesterday. Uh, he's now their permanent president. You know, Greg's probably 72, 73 years old. And I know how much he loves that institution. But Greg or Charlie taught me how to how to how to lead people, um, you know, from the heart. And, you know, that's certainly somebody I, who I owe a lot, uh, owe, owe a lot to um, some colleagues and, and mentors along the way. You know, Andrew Brown at Gallister College is their VP of advancement. Uh, Eric Thurman is the Vice President uh, of Advancement of Development at St. Thomas uh, University in in Minnesota. Um, You know, I've been fortunate to work with and work for and have worked for me a lot of really great people. Um, You know, here, you know, if you talk about a mentor, 
to be able to, you know, sit in cabinet meetings with, you know, somebody in Richard Myers who had to make some of the most difficult decisions that any human being in the history of our, of our country have had to make uh, really provide some perspective uh, on what we do, right? Our work's important, but nobody's dying on the table and what we do and, 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 to, and to watch him lead and engage uh, for somebody with four stars on his, on his chest and, and responsible for leading our country's military forces in the most turbulent time that most of us remember, um, the way he treats people with genuine authenticity and care, um, we all can learn from. And certainly in a world where I tell you I make decisions only based off of statistics, uh, having the balance of that empathy and that heart as, a, as a somebody who you really admire um, has been, as I know, has made me a better dad and, and certainly a better leader for our people here. Well, that segues really into our last, uh, <laughs> yeah, our last question, which is, um, I think you've sort of done it throughout this conversation, but why K-State, when you make the, the, the case for K-State, maybe there are listeners who are thinking about their next opportunity, what's the plug for why they should check out your, your careers page? It sounds like it starts at the top, but, um, but, but goes all the way down to the student uh, uh, colleagues as well. But uh, make your pitch and, and, and we'll wrap. Yeah, so for all you fundraisers out here, you know, I tell folks, we've created the fundraisers utopia, right? If you wanna be an excellent fundraiser, this is where you wanna be, right? This is where you wanna come, right? We're setting you up for success. We're giving you the tools uh, and providing you that progressive platform platform to really take off in your career. Um, all those sorts of things that we talk about, metric numbers, statistics, data, or a human capital business, and most of our attention goes to that human capital. So we are going to succeed here, uh, and, and we have a vested interest in earning your pinnacle career experience at Kansas State University Foundations. That starts at certainly the top with Greg Willems and, and kind of flows through. Why Kansas State as a deserving recipient of philanthropy and of students to enroll we are the land grant institution and we honor that beyond any other institution I've seen. So when you talk about access, affordability, research and education, we honor that uh, to the T. Um, you see a lot of land grant uh, institutions, uh, some of them become so academically competitive that they're restricted to their constituencies, right? So I'm a great high school student, but I'm not a superb high school student. I don't. I didn't have the resources in St. Charles, Minnesota, that every single test I took uh, as, a, as a high school looked exactly like the ACT I was going to take. The first time I saw the ACT was the day I took the ACT. My wife who grew up in wealthy suburban Chicago, every test they, she took from the time she was in ninth grade looked exactly like the ACT test, right? So I might be a really talented student, but maybe my ACT score isn't a 29, we have land grant institutions whose minimum accepted is, is a 29 or a 30 ACT to even get in. I'm not sure that's honoring the land grant mission that was, that was set out so many years ago. K-State does that, right? We're about access and opportunity. We take good people and we make them great. We still do that with cutting edge research, particularly in the areas of agriculture, global foods, veterinary medicine. We have a excellent college of engineering, a business. We have 98% job placement. You come here, you're going to get a job. You're going to be competitive. Uh, we're the big 12. We're, we are, we got big time college sports. Uh, we have great facilities. Our students get to sit in midcourt and the, in the basketball facility. Uh, they got great seats in our football facility. You're going to get that experience. And we are the quintessential college town. If you want that true college town experience, Manhattan, Kansas is about as good as it gets. Carolyn and I can both 
echo that statement. If yeah. you haven't been to Manhattan, Kansas, it is a great college town. Some great people. Uh, I might it, go back to college. I'm feeling. <laughs> we I'm, definitely don't I'm get. Like, we don't go to enough athletic uh, events. We are. We go to so many campuses. We go in. We have the meetings. We leave. I know. I think drove get by the stadium, right. and I was like, "That it looks awesome." I'm tired of just taking football I, I stadium pictures. We gotta. We gotta get I know, in. We gotta plan better. Maybe uh, you know we, we don't need the 50 yard line, John, but maybe uh, you <laughs> know, know, maybe we dinner, can make that happen. I want dinner and I want the 50 yard line. I want smoke. <laughs> well. Uh, we can't thank you enough for sharing your perspective. Uh, you're a, a, a great leader, a great friend, and I think the uh, the whole sector can learn a lot. I think we can learn a lot in trying to apply some of these same principles to to our work at Evertrue. Um, Caroline, any any closing thoughts? Thanks for letting me join. I know it was very impromptu, but I'm glad I got this to participate great. on a Friday afternoon. It's so nice. John, any any last words uh, here on the Race Podcast? No, thank you guys. Uh, you know. Brent, you and the whole team at, at, at Evertrue, you guys do a great job of pushing the sector and uh, keep it up. Uh, we need it. Uh, we need partners like you helping to ensure that we keep this thing going. Our, our, our institutions deserve it and our donors deserve it. So thank you both. Thanks a bunch, John. Have a uh, great weekend in that odyssey and we'll, uh, we'll talk to you soon. <laughs> All right, we'll see you guys. Take care. Bye, John.